This morning we will be continuing on in Judges chapter 19, uh, and I want to concentrate specifically on verses 3 through 15 in chapter 19. And this will be, the, the sermon title is The Guilt of Benjamin, Part 2. We're continuing on from last week, which was basically just an introduction. And by way of recap, I want to point you towards the theme of Judges that we have read twice and we will read again as we get to the very end of the book. In those days, there was no king in Israel. This resulted in everyone doing what was right in his own eyes. Each person was his or her own sovereign at this time in Israel. Think about that. If everybody is king, if everybody is sovereign, there can be really no lasting accord amongst people, no unity. Each person is their own judge of their own behavior. No one has the right to judge another's behavior. This would include, we must realize, the Lord, that the Lord would have no right to judge. So think of each person operating like a sovereign nation. At times, sovereign nations can join in alliances, but alliances are never lasting, are they? Generally, they come to a point where they fall apart, and often warfare erupts. This is the state of Israel at this time. This idea of no king, if you recall from several weeks ago, I talked about what this word meant, what it implied, and it implies anarchy. Anarchy in the classical sense, not so much as there were no laws, that no, there was no um, written statutes, statutes, I should say, um, but that there was no ruler. That is the classical definition of anarchy. Everyone doing what is right in their own eyes. So this thematic no king refrain that I keep referring to, we see it again, we saw it last week in the first part of verse 1 of chapter 19. And I refer back to it frequently because I do it as a way of reminder that what follows in the narrative is not right. And it's very easy for those not real familiar with Scripture to read something in the Bible and think, well, it's in the Bible. That must be what God wants or what God commands. So, between this idea of, of people doing what is not right and the writer, the narrator, telling us a story, I want you to understand something that's important. In literature, we have, um, in a narrative literature, we have what's called a reliable narrator or an unreliable narrator. And in, in, in many pieces of literature, there's an unreliable narrator who you cannot trust to, to tell the story as it's actually occurring. But here, our writer, the inspired author, human author of the book of Judges is a reliable narrator. So we can, we can um, rely on him to tell us what is happening. What we must understand, and what my point is, is the actions of the characters in the story. These historical people are not doing what is right. And, and that is what we need to understand. And as we began the narrative last week, we met an anonymous Levite. Now recall, 
the, the, the Levites, the tribe of Levi, were a tribe set apart by Yahweh God as the religious and spiritual leaders of Israel. They had a very important function under the Old Covenant. And this Levite undertook a journey for matrimonial purposes. But instead of a wife, he takes a concubine. Now this concubine also is anonymous. In the story, in in verse 3, she begins to be referred to as a girl. And following through the narrative, she's referred to as a girl. In Hebrew, a nara'ah. So the importance there with this Hebrew word is doesn't, doesn't that sound like what we were reading about the, the Levite priest in the story of Micah and the Danites? Well, he was referred to as a na'ar, a, a, a young boy. So now we have this concubine, a young girl. So again, our author is making this connection. And just like with the young Levite, this term is very general and vague. It can refer to Uh, a girl from infancy all the way up to uh, the cusp of young adulthood, which unlike our society where we have, um, you know, an age of of adulthood where we can do things like, you know, buy things that, you know, aren't really good for us or vote, things of that nature. We have statutory regulations. It wasn't so much the case in, in the ancient cultures, like ancient Israel. It was more like when a, when a child was mature, mature enough to become an adult, that's when this transition happened. In, in Israel, under the rabbinical laws later, of course, we have the mitzvah, the bar mitzvah, and the bat mitzvah um, that recognizes that. Now, in, in this ancient society, there was no, it wasn't like adolescence, there wasn't teenager years. That, that's, a, that's a fairly modern concept. So what we had is we have children and adults. And children are moving and maturing towards adulthood when they're suddenly adults. So this girl is young. How young, I can't tell you. We, do, we really don't know. She's, I would say she's a young, what we would call a teenager. So this is not um, uh, a, a woman in her 20s. I believe that she's, she's younger than that. So that, that, that's some good information to keep in mind as we read and we struggle, because some of this is a struggle. We struggle with what's going on. So the Levite, we had read we'd, that he was re- residing, really sojourning, which means he was a, he was a, uh, 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 an alien resident. He was not part of the tribe of the remote parts of the hill country of Ephraim. This is how the author describes it. And he desires marriage. Well, interestingly, Ephraim, the name of the tribe Ephraim, means in Hebrew to be fruitful. And the remote parts in Hebrew, Yerakah, comes from a root meaning of the inner thigh could also be translated the far side. So both these terms, Ephraim and Yerakah, are implicitly connected with the begetting of children. Um, So there's this going on in the background here, this very subtle that I think the ancient Israelites, they would pick up on. So this phrase that we read about where he lives suggests he lives on the far side of the hills 
He is remote from the heights of Ephraim. He's remote from fertility. And as we will see in this account, the rest of the book of Judges, there's no begetting of children within the entire tale. This lack of fertility or even the opportunity for fruitfulness within marriage, I think is what's driving the whole story here. We have a a bride who rejects her husband, and her rejection of her husband is the catalyst for a tribe of Israel having no brides and facing extinction. This is, this is the core of what's going on, and this absence of fruitfulness is telling. Since children were seen, rightfully so, as a sign of God's blessing to the people, and part of his covenant promise of fruitfulness to Israel, and this is missing in the story. And this, this, what we read about this Levite, he's, he's going to travel from the far side of Ephraim to Bethlehem in Judah for matrimonial purposes. Now, this is very unusual in this culture. Ancient Near East earned marriage customs, which um, really went, have, have not changed much into the 20th and 21st centuries in some areas of, of, the, of the Near East. Usually, the marriage involves uh, 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 a man and a woman, a male and a female, from a relatively narrow circle of acquaintances, quite often and ideally the children of two brothers. Or, if not that, then relatives within uh, the family or people that live in close proximity, neighbors belonging to the same tribe or living in the same village. And the social structure of these marriages is what's known as uh, patrilocal, which means that upon marriage, the young woman moves into her husband's family's home, and she gets absorbed into the husband's family. So she leaves her family, goes into the extended family of her husband, But nevertheless, her family remains important in her life. This is is not just trivia stuff. This this uh, gives us insight into what we're going to see happening in the passage that that we see today. So even though she's, she's living with her husband's family, her own family remains responsible for both her moral behavior and to protect her if her husband um, does her wrong, so to speak. The family, her own family, it is their job to look out for her interests, um, as we might say. So, so here, um, when the daughter belongs to a, a group very much separated from the, the groom's group, these two families, you know, not, not residing close by, not being connected by marriage, being of different tribes even, then we have a setting where difficulties can arise. Um, difficulties that are outside of the ability of this social structure to mitigate and, and to manage. And ideally... The close proximity of the daughter's family provides support for her should her husband mistreat her. 
However, when the family's at a distance in this case, the daughter is virtually unprotected. Yet, this young girl returns to her father in the story. And as we go through this, think about this. Is she protected at that point when she returns to her father? Close blood ties and physical proximity of the bride's father to that of the groom's effectively reduces the, the, the threats on both sides and, and provides for um, very, very stable marital relationships. And this, what we see in this instance, where the concubine's father allowed her, or perhaps even compelled her, to enter into this relationship with the, the Levite, someone not connected to them at all, suggests, I would say, that they are poor, they're impoverished, they lack in status. It's very likely that the father sold this young girl to the Levite to do with as he desired. Whether it's a slave or a bed partner or both. The concubine status here is very important to understand. Biblical Hebrew distinguishes clearly between a wife, an Issa, a second wife, a Sorah, which interestingly literally means a female adversary or rival. Now, men, if you ever thought having more than one wife might be interesting. <laughs> the, the lexical background of that, of that word kind of tells us that you're, this is just going to be trouble. Um, in fact, Leviticus 18.18 18 talks about you shall not, and this is the ESV, how it's translated, you shall not take a woman as a rival wife to her sister. That actually is second wife. That is Sarah. So the Bible talks about the second wife as a rival um, to the first. And we see this in the story of the patriarchs, don't we? We do not see any good example of a polygamous marriage. It, they're all train wrecks. And then there's the concubine, which is a different word from wife or second wife. It's uh, pilegesh. Uh, it's, a, it's a loan word. It's not even a Hebrew word. And it's, and it's curious in this story, the Levite, there has, there's no mention of him having a primary wife. As far as we know, he's unattached to any woman until he takes this young woman as a concubine. And we're familiar, you know, with the, in the tales of the patriarchs, the important role that what are usually translated as handmaidens, slaves to the primary wife, play, and how important they are in the story of Israel and in the lineage of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. So these women that are in the classification, the category of concubines, are important to the biblical story. They, they must not be ignored or demeaned at all. <clears throat> so... To understand a little bit more about this very odd thing with concubines, Israelite men, like any other man in the ancient Near East, was allowed to take a concubine. And uh, uh, generally, they were um, often female slaves. Now, in this place, in this time, as true in most of the world, there were only two types of slaves, two, two, two types of slavery. There was debt slavery, where 
Uh, poor people could sell themselves or their children into slavery. This generally was Israelite selling himself or a family member to another Israelite. And God's law put a cap on the number of years that that debt slavery would go. And generally it was six years as a slave, seventh year released, and then certainly in the year of Jubilee, all of the slaves, the debt slaves were to be released. There were also another type of slave, those taken during war. Female captives could be taken as slaves, and they could be used either as bed partners or as menial laborers um, in the house of the the man that that took them captive. Now, these would be non-Israelite. These would be Gentile women that were taken, and there was no manumission, there was no release uh, for them like there was with the Israelite slaves. Now, in this, in this instance we're dealing with, we, we had that, we talked about it last week, about the translation that the concubine um, had been unfaithful to the, the Levite. And I, and I explained that somewhat. And, I, and so think about this. If this concubine had committed adultery, her husband, the Levite, and her father, under Mosaic law, would both be responsible for her punishment. They would have to see to her punishment. And Deuteronomy states that she is to be stoned to death at her father's door. She's to be returned to her father's house and executed by the men of her family, the men of the neighborhood, the men of the tribe. And what is very certain is that no Israelite man is going to journey after a wife who had committed adultery and fled from him, he, no Israelite man is going to journey after her to return her home to restore the marriage. That absolutely would not happen. He might go after her to make sure she is punished, but not to bring her home and not to give her an opportunity to recommit to the marriage. Deuteronomy tells us they should do this because um, you shall purge the evil from your midst. So this brings us to the question that we need to address here. Why was adultery treated so harshly? This can lead to misunderstandings, and it could lead us to think, well, they were just, this was ancient and brutal times. We're much more enlightened now. Think of it. This This is the time of the Old Covenant. The new covenant had not come. There was no atonement available for moral sin. And adultery, of course, is a, is a heinous moral sin. The only thing available for the violation of, of moral law, God's moral law, was punishment. The law can only convict. It cannot atone. And the only atonement available under the Old Covenant was for unintentional sin, for violations of ritual purity, not moral purity. Sin, ritual or moral, either one, infected the entire community and rendered them unsuitable for the Lord's presence, for the Shekinah to be with them. So thus the Day of Atonement, when Atonement is made for unintentional sins. That's exactly what Leviticus calls those sins, unintentional sins. That's what the atonement's made for. If there is moral sin, 
theft requires you know, the, re the returning of property plus uh, a penalty assessment, if you will. But the other things are punishable by death or banishment from the, 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 the tribes of Israel. Banishment would be, in effect, just a slower way of being killed. That's why in Hebrews 7.22, we're told Jesus is our guarantor of a better covenant. The new covenant bought by his blood on the cross. We get atonement for these sins under the new covenant that could not be atoned for under the old covenant. What a glorious atonement. What a glorious salvation that Christ has provided to us. So there's that. That's one of the reasons why adultery was treated so harshly. Another thing... Another reason is protection of the family. As a foundational stabilizing element of society, marriages were to be safeguarded. Patriarchal blessing and inheritance rights were thus protected when there were no interlopers into the marriage that might sire you know, children. This assured the legitimacy of the offspring, which was very necessary especially this man being a Levite, you know, the tribe of Levi. It was, uh, um, think about when they returned, uh, when the captives returned from Babylon, what we read about the genealogies and how they're figuring out, are these men who are claiming Levitical heritage, are they actual Levites? They cannot enter into the rebuilt temple if they are not, and some men were excluded because there was no genealogical evidence found to support them as, as being members of the tribe of Levi. Israel also was to remain pure from the Gentile nations as a people set apart by and for Yahweh, the Lord God. This required adherence to a moral standard that was set by God. And although Israel deviated from this at times, and each time God made a course correction with them and brought them back, and these Old Testament laws seem so draconian. They seem so harsh to the modern mind. But really, they were in place to protect the weak, to protect the weak from being preyed upon by those more powerful. Pay attention to that idea when we go through this. Is this happening in this instance with this young girl? Is she being protected? Um, the, 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 the very well-known... Um, Precept of the Old Testament, eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth. People talk about that today. Oh, how brutal. What kind of God would establish that? Well, it was to protect the powerless from the powerful. If you were someone that was nobody and you accidentally knocked the tooth out of a powerful member of a powerful family, without this law, you would very likely in ancient society be killed for that. This law protected the powerless. It's like you cannot, you cannot punish the weak any more than you can punish the strong. There is one standard of justice. It may sound harsh to us, but do we see a double standard in our society? We certainly do in many different ways. Where we know if we do certain things, we'll be punished in this manner. And we see other people that do things even worse that seem to escape punishment. So this is not so much a bad idea. 
And these adultery laws, along the same idea that, that were in the Mosaic Law, um, provided, gave protection to young women from seducers. So compare this just momentarily to our culture's what I would call schizophrenic attitude towards adultery. It's publicly frowned upon, isn't it? No one, you know, well, so, so the adultery is wrong. We, we can agree with that. But it's frowned upon with a wink and a nod, isn't it? Because it's, it's often elevated in our entertainment. Um, it's provided the halo of romance in our, in our movies and some of the novels. And, and it's excused when the participants claim true love as motivation to what they're doing. They're just following their heart. We can't stop someone from following our heart. Well, Jeremiah tells us our hearts are desperately wicked. And we need changed hearts. So which is better for a society? Protection of and support of marriage or treating marriage as temporary and changeable? And I don't want you to misunderstand what I'm saying. I'm going to emphasize this. I am not voicing uh, support for the return to stoning of women and men for, for adultery. We're under the new covenant. We can turn to Christ for atonement, for salvation. We can turn from our sin. God sends the Spirit to us to change our hearts, to turn us from adulterers, maybe physical, but certainly spiritual, into the pure and spotless bride of Christ is how the church, how we are described, and none of us on our own earned that pure and spotless status that we are given. The, the, the disparate application of the law, I wanted to just to, to mention that, um, where... Uh, people might point out, well, the women seem to be treated differently than the men in the Bible. <clears throat> the incident that, that we call the, um, the, uh, the pericope of the woman taken in adultery, our Lord addresses this disparate treatment in that. So we can see that even if we do come across disparate treatment in the Bible, that it is not like I explained at the beginning of this sermon, that does not mean it's a good thing, that this is the way it should be. The Lord Jesus made a severe correction, course change, in the attitude of those men that were gathered to stone a woman taken in adultery. And everyone quickly realizes when they hear or read the story, the man that was in adultery, because it takes two to tango, doesn't it? He's nowhere to be found. It's just this poor woman who's drug out humiliated and about to be murdered for the explicit reason of the Pharisees, the religious leaders, convicting Jesus of Nazareth of blasphemy and violating the Mosaic law, depending on what he said. They thought he had them trapped. They did not. This brings me to my first point. Marriage is to be honored and protected. Point number one. Marriage is to be honored and protected. Now, I know I made a similar point last week when I said marriage is the key to our social order, um, but marriage is so vital that I don't hesitate to, to turn to this topic again. 
um, because it's, it's one of the, like I said, it's one of the driving things in this story we're reading about. Why has the Lord God made this such a vital element in this very last account in the book of Judges? The point of the moral and ethical laws regarding marriage given to Israel by the Lord God was not to maintain and empower the patriarchy, as we might say today in the 21st century. That is the rule of men over women. That wasn't the point. It was to place an impenetrable wall of protection around marriage, the union of a man and a woman. And this wall has been steadily chipped away at by our society. However, realize, brothers and sisters, within the church, this wall has stood firmer, at least, than it does in society. And contrary to this idea that is popularly repeated, and, and maybe you've heard this, this, this untruth that says that the divorce within the church occurs at the same rate as outside the truth, that's simply not true. In fact, studies have shown, honest studies, that, uh, and they've assigned percentages to this, and I won't get into all of them, but the striking one is that Couples in this one study that were described per the study as uh, conservative, Protestant, um, regular church attenders involved in their church are 35% less likely to divorce compared to people that have no church affiliation. So being a committed Christian goes far towards protecting your marriage. If we believe this lie that our marriages do no better within the church when, when we place the Lord Jesus as the focus of our marriages and our families and our own lives, if we do no better than people who reject God, reject Christ on the outside, then what good is a commitment to the Lord, we might ask? And I think that would be a, a right question um, to ask. If, if God can't save a marriage, what can he say? This is, remember, this, our marriages, for those of us that are married, um, are, are the essential social element of our society. This is what everything builds from, is from marriages. Well, God does save marriages. Not only by his law, which upholds marriages, he saves our marriage by changing our hearts, doesn't he? With changed hearts, Christian husbands are no longer like the Levite in this story, concerned only with his own needs and desires, with no thought or attention given to his wife, giving scant thought to her absence, as we're going to read, for four months. She leaves, and it takes him four months to decide, well, I guess I better go get her. I think his needs spurred him. It, he, got, he got to a point where this place is a mess. I need someone to clean it up. You know what? And it's getting cold. It's winter's coming, and I need you know, so, something to warm me up in bed. Hot water bottles you know, we are, don't work real well when they're made out of sheepskin. I'm going to go get her. So Paul exhorts us, men, in Ephesians 5.25, Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Now, this is not Paul's personal advice. And, you know, realize that from the pulpit, when we say Paul said this or James wrote this, that it is the word of God. 
Paul is acting under God's divine inspiration to write this. Now, Paul wrote lots of letters that we don't have. Why don't we have them? Because they were not divinely inspired. They were good letters, you know, and probably had good things in them, things that we would have liked to know that would help explain other things. But God did not choose to preserve those because those weren't inspired. However, this command is like from the mouth of God through Paul. Realize that we are given many negative examples of mistreatment and not protecting women in the Bible. But all of them are wiped away by the great example of Christ. Christ is who we look to. It's like when I've I've talked to unbelievers, and I'm sure many of you have had this exact same experience. Talking about Christ, talking about Christ's church. Oh, well, I know Christians that da-da-da-da-da do this, do that, da-da-da-da. Well, that's unfortunate, but do not look to the follower. Look to the Lord. The Lord is our example. So we don't look to the men and women who make a botch of their marriage in the accounts we're given in the Bible. They are not our examples. Christ is our great example. And Christ is the perfect bridegroom who has a perfect bride, which is us. And we know we're not perfect, but it is his righteousness that makes us perfect, that takes us dirty, sinful harlots and turns us into virgins again. Any of you who grieve over sin in your past life, any of you who grieve over maybe things done to you against your will that think you have been made filthy by that. Beloved, that's not what our Lord says. You have been made pure by his blood. It is though that never occurred. If you were to speak to the Lord about that, he might say to you, I don't know what you're talking about. That's been done away with. I love you. You are my spotless virgin bride who I am committed to. Ladies, the word of God exhorts you also. Respect your husbands. Ephesians, again we read, for he is the head of your family, just as Christ is the head of the church Men, this places great responsibility upon us. But the Spirit of God gives us the ability to do this. Men, Christian brothers, love your wives and children. Lead your wives and children. Protect your wives and children. Now we turn to the text, Judges 19, 3 through 9. Then her husband arose and went after her to speak kindly to her. Okay, this is, this is me speaking now. Note well, as we go through this, you're going to hear heart language. Literally, in the Hebrew, this means he went after her to speak to her heart and bring her back. 
He had with him his servant and a couple of donkeys, and she brought him into her father's house. And when the, father, when the girl's father saw him, he came out to meet him with joy. And his father-in-law, the girl's father, made him stay, and he remained with him three days. So they ate and drank and spent the night there. And on the fourth day, they arose early in the morning, and he prepared to go. But the girl's father said to his son-in-law, Strengthen your heart, second mention, with a morsel of bread, and after that you may go. So the two of them sat and ate and drank together. And the girl's father said to the man, Be pleased to spend the night and let your heart be merry. Third time with the heart. And the man rose up to go. His father-in-law pressed him till he spent the night there again. And on the fifth day, he arose early in the morning to depart. And the girl's father said, Strengthen your heart, fourth time with the heart, and wait until the day declines. So they ate, both of them. And when the man and his concubine and his servant rose up to depart, his father-in-law, the girl's father, said to him, Behold, now the day has waned toward evening. Please spend the night. Behold, the day draws to its close. Lodge here and let your heart be merry. Fifth time with the heart. And tomorrow you shall arise early in the morning for your journey and go home. So verse 3, right off. He goes after to speak kindly to her and bring her home, to speak to her heart. And this phrase is used multiple times in the Old Testament, frequently in the context of convincing someone of something. So the, these Levite, the Levites' actions, think about them. Are they the actions of a man who's been wronged by a woman who has committed adultery? Or is the actions more in line with a man that has done wrong and wants to go get his wife to bring her back? And as I said before, if she really committed adultery, he wouldn't be bringing her back. There's no way. This adds, I think, to the evidence that the translation that she was angry with him is, is correct, is the correct translation, rather than the translation she was unfaithful to him. So the, you, the more you get into this, the more you're going to see that that's problematic. But, as I said, there could be a joining of the two. The fact that she left could be interpreted as not being faithful to the, the covenant of marriage or the purchase agreement, in this, as the case may be. And if he had sold her, if the father, um, uh, when he, the, Levite arrives at the home of the concubine, what do we read? She brought him into her father's house, and her father came with joy to meet him. Now, if he had sold his daughter to the Levite as a slave girl, this ingratiating attitude that we're going to see through this could stem, perhaps, over the Levite's concern that, or excuse me, the father's concern that the Levite might demand his purchase price back for this slave girl that he bought. We're not told of the concubine's response, though, are we? She simply observed the code of the guest-host relationship and brought the Levite into the house. Really, there's no other option in ancient Near East customs. We simply cannot understand the importance of hospitality in that culture. It was, in fact, better to die than not extend hospitality and protection to a guest. Many people, when they read accounts or they're told accounts like this, well, why didn't she just tell him to hit the road? 
Um, I don't get it. I would have said that. Well, no, you wouldn't have. You don't understand the culture. And I'm going to emphasize this. We do not understand it. Just take it from me. I can't make it clear. I can't make us understand it because we simply don't live in this culture. But this is a very real thing, very important, this hospitality idea. So she invites him in. And then what happens? She's ignored by both her father and her husband, even though she is the reason for the Levite being there. She's virtually invisible in this passage. It's though she's not even present. The Levite speaks not one word to her. We have to wonder, when does he speak kindly to her? When does he speak to her heart? That was his state and intention, right? When he set out to go to the father's house to speak to her heart. And remember, don't forget that the father remains responsible for his daughter's behavior. If she had acted immorally, he is breaking the law by not punishing her as well as she. Now in the ancient Near East hospitality customs, a guest was customarily given a three-day stay in someone's home. And we read this in verse 4. These three days are passed over very quickly. You stayed three days. What happens during those days? By custom, the first day is spent greeting and making inquiries about one's health and one's family. The second day is the day of feasting. You feast, you enjoy each other's company, you relax. The third day is when you get down to business. It takes three days to get to the point where you're going to talk about um, what you're there to talk about. Now, just think, <laughs> I know many of you personally, that would just drive you crazy. Like, what are they here for? I, I got to let them stay here three days before I even find out why they're here? I can't take that. I'll give them 15 minutes. They can arrive. Hey, how you doing? You know, here's, 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 here's some water. Okay, what do you want? That's the way we, we would do it, right? So these customary three days have passed. That's when the narrative expands. An ancient Israelite expects to hear of a three-day visit. Oh, yeah, he was there three days. Okay. But longer than that, this, this visit goes on. It become, then it becomes interesting to the Israelite. Israelite would wonder, hmm, what's up with that? There's something going on here. This draws the attention, right? It's like it's been underlined in fluorescent highlighter. We don't see that, though, because it's like, yeah, that's weird. You know, you know what's the old saying about... Uh, a visit supposed to be like a fish after so many days, the, you know, three days the, the visitor starts to smell too, some, something along those lines. So in verse 5 we read, And on the fourth day they arose early in the morning, and he prepared to go. It appears the Levite might be departing without the girl. But her father urges the Levite to stay and strengthen your heart with a morsel of bread. The pronoun your here and strengthen your heart is masculine singular. So the father is speaking only to the Levite. That adds weight to this idea that it's only the Levite leaving. He's trying to keep, the father's trying to keep the Levite from leaving without the girl. We hear this phrase stay and strengthen your heart with a morsel of bread. And we think it's just an idiom for an invitation. There's nothing more to it than the host offering uh, a meal before, you know, the guest hits the road. However, 
with speaking to the heart of the concubine announced as the purpose of the visit only two verses previously. So we shouldn't have forgotten it. If we were, if we were Israelites hearing this story or reading it, we certainly wouldn't have because we would have, we would have understood it. It would have been easier for us to understand. The use of the term heart again is significant. It's a clue for those who can hear it. There's more going on here than a simple offer of further hospitality. Is the father hinting to the Levite that he has not accomplished what he came to do? So this heart language that we see going on provides us with these important clues that fill out this typically sparse Hebrew story. You know, we read stories in the Bible and invariably it's like, man, I wish there was more information. This, this tremendous thing happened and we're only given a few verses. Well, in this account, we're given three chapters of it, but still it's not enough that we can dig into it. And, and by understanding their customs and what the language is saying in biblical Hebrew, it gives us greater insight into it. So the father in encourages a Levite to prolong the visit a fourth night, then a fifth night. Another invitation is given for a sixth night, double the length of time of a normal stay. By then, the Levite says, no, I got to go. I've been here too long. Verses 6 and 7, in terms of the way the story is told, there's two significant things that are happening. First, in verse 6, the marginalization of the concubine becomes very explicit. Given that in verse 5, it's specifically her husband that her father invited to stay for a meal, where he says, please fortify yourself, the masculine singular with a bit of food. The two of them who sit down to eat and drink in verse 6 here are the two men, must be the two men. The father's speaking only to the Levite about let's have this meal. The concubine, the young girl, she's not invited to this. She's either absent or ignored. And secondly, at the conclusion of the meal, the young woman's father urges his guests to stay and enjoy yourself for another night. Again, this is the phrase, let your heart be good. So this is the third time the heart has been used in this narrative. The writer is pointing out to us the real reason behind the father's reluctance to let the Levite go that there's a puzzling contradiction in the father's behavior. If he detains the Levite in the hope of a full reconciliation with his daughter, if he's looking out for his daughter's best interests, why does the father pay so little attention to her? Well, really, no attention to her, to be honest. The unmistakable impression I think we're left with is that he's intent on cultivating the relationship with the Levite for his own sake rather than for her sake. What could that be? The Levite's relationship with his daughter maybe, perhaps, is merely what has given him the opportunity to get something that he wants. It's very much like, and we must go back to the previous account to understand a lot of this. It's like the the story of Micah and the Danites where the young Levite is seen as a valuable commodity, both by Micah and by the Danites. Now in this account, we don't have any reference to a shrine like we did with Micah. But given the disorder of Israelite society at the time, a family connection with a Levite may well have great value amongst one's 
tribe, one's clan, one's village, one's neighborhood. You have a Levite. There's superstitious value to that. Look what Micah did with it. He, 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 he had a house of gods uh, because he had his own priest. So it's socially advantageous to have a Levite in your home. At least the young woman's father, I think, thinks this. And this is probably why, in verse 3, he's so delighted to meet the Levite. The Levite comes to his door after his daughter being home for four months. This brings me to my second point. And I'm going to have to make this connection clearer for you. But But here's the point that I'm working towards. Point number two. Every person is made in the image and likeness of God. Point number two is every person is made in the image and likeness of God. So that, what is, that means, this is what that means. Every person has an intrinsic, that is inherent value as God's image bearer, whether a follower of Christ or not. We must not ever lose sight of that. God's moral law, both in stone and in our hearts, requires respect for human life. Thus, we have this universal taboo found in every culture against murder. It's not acceptable anywhere to murder. God's image bearers also are not to be treated as objects or possessions, as we're seeing in this story, I suggest. Nor should they be used as a means to an end by someone else that is used for a time and cast off, disposed of like refuse. We are not to treat God thusly, so neither are we to treat one another thusly. We recognize the preciousness of life beginning in the womb, as the psalmist tells us, for we are fearfully and wonderfully made. That's each and every one of us. We are to live our lives daily in light of this knowledge and and demand the same of others, including governments. We are right to do so. Listen to the words of Christ, our Lord. It's recorded by Matthew, chapter 25, verses 34 through 40. The Lord Jesus said, Come, you who are blessed by my Father, inherit the kingdom. I'm going to cut in here. Notice that our Lord is speaking to the elect here. He's not making a a general moral teaching like some would want to make Jesus' words. He's talking to the elect of God. This kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry and you gave me food. I was thirsty and you gave me drink. I was a stranger and you welcomed me. I was naked and you clothed me. I was sick and you visited me. I was in prison and you came to me. Then the righteous will answer him. Again, I cut in. Those made righteous by Christ. These are not the righteous of their own power. And these, made righteous by Christ, said, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you, or thirsty and give you drink? And when did we see you a stranger and welcome you, or naked and clothe you? And when did we see you sick or in prison or vis- and visit you? And the king will answer him, Truly I say to you, as you did to one of the least of these, my brothers, you did it to me. We who have been given such a great salvation, hearts of flesh to receive the Father's invitation to acknowledge and accept 
the Son as our Lord and Savior, must not act with our old hearts of stone towards fellow image bearers of God. Scripture is clear on this point. How we treat other people reveals how we really view God in our hearts. How we see others is how we see God. This is the root of all relationships and interactions, our relationship with God. Those who perceive others as servants view God as existing to serve them. So when God does not bow and dish up their every whim, what good is he, they ask. This is the idolatry of worship of self, our self-delusion of godhood, going all the way back to the garden and the lie of the serpent, who told the woman, you will be like gods. That is what we want in our old sinful nature. Back to our text. In verse 8, we have the fifth day of the visit, beginning with the Levite rising early and ends with him and the host feasting together for another day. Again, the young woman is barely visible. We know of her presence by her father's request, though. When he says, wait until the day declines, wait is a plural imperative here. So he's speaking to the two of them. They are both to wait. So he's speaking to more than one person. There's another hint of her presence, however, that's equally hard to spot, but potentially more significant. Here we have heart occurring for the fourth time. And in verse 7, he says, literally, the father says, fortify your heart. The hospitality he's showing the Levite has become ridiculous now. But the way the word heart keeps occurring again and again reminds us, and I'm emphasizing this obviously, why the Levite came in the first place and provides the very clue to her father's strange behavior. There is a matter of the heart that has fallen into the background and almost forgotten, just like this poor young woman has virtually been forgotten. She's so marginalized in the story, she's barely discernible, but she's still present. If only subconsciously in the minds of these two men because she's the reason they're there. She's the reason why they're interacting with each other. But ironically, she's invisible to them. She is the link between them, but she is forgotten. But the writer is calling our attention back to her time and time again. And it's easy for us to miss this. That's why I'm taking great pains to point this out, the writers say, no, wait, wait, her. She's here. She's forgotten. This is about her. It's her heart to be, that should be spoken to. The father should not be cultivating his, his selfish relationship with the Levite. It is his daughter's heart that should be in focus. So the girl's father makes an appeal again, the fifth time, to the Levite's heart to remain in his home another night, a sixth night. He subtly compares what the Levite has waiting for him in Ephraim to what he has in Bethlehem. It's like, it's a very subtle sales job, I think, that's going on here. Here, in Bethlehem, he has comfortable accommodations in a house, in a house with a pleasant cuisine available to city dwellers. You know, there's farming going on. There's a market. There's all sorts of stuff going on. Compared that to the Levite's home, translated as home in English, but literally it's a tent. He has a tent in the rural 
far side of the hills in Ephraim. It's like going home to a shack in the hollers of Kentucky or something is what she's, she's facing. And the, and the rough table fare of a nomad. He is really nothing more than, than a nomad. So it looks more and more like this father wants his own Levite in his house, like Micah and the Danites, as I mentioned. So there's these five days of dealing that's going on that we're not, we don't hear about. But we must realize that this is going on in the background. Five days of dealing until the Levite finally leaves with a concubine. Again, it's noticeable that the feasting and merrymaking seem to involve only the two men, the Levite and his father-in-law. The manservant, the Levite has a manservant. He's not mentioned either, but he's not, he is not the focus. He's not germane. He's not the central character of the story like the girl is. If this girl is nothing more than a serving girl, even in the house of her father, I have to wonder how bad was it with the Levite that she chose to flee from that back to this with the way her father's treating her. And the prolonged hospitality that's going on here, it's particularly relevant. Everything points to the concubine being purchased, that she is a slave girl, suggesting that her family is poor. Since they live in a house, not a tent, we may presume that they have a settled way of life, a settled way of life that is like farming rather than being herdsmen, following you know, the pastures and, and you know, the, the, the feed available for wandering livestock. Um, they live, her family lives in a city rather than out in the hills. Like I said, the Levite lives in a tent. Uh, he's a sojourner living far away from fertility in Ephraim. This comparison also provides insight into another aspect of the domestic trouble between the Levite and the young woman, perhaps. Being raised in a city, she's been sold into the lifestyle of a tent-dwelling nomad. She's a slave laboring at menial tasks and an object of lust to a man that gives no thought to her beyond what she provides for him. Her situation really is about as far as one could get from God's reason and design for marriage. We must realize this. Now verses 10 through 13. But the man, that is the Levite, would not spend the night. He rose up and departed and arrived opposite Jebus, that is Jerusalem. He had with him a couple of saddled donkeys and his concubine was with them. When they were near Jebus, the day was nearly over and the servant said to his master, Come now, let us turn aside to this city of the Jebusites and spend the night in it. And his master said to him, We will not turn aside into the city of foreigners who do not belong to the people of Israel, but we will pass on to Gibeah. So the concubine returns with the Levite, but she's ignored on the journey back just as much as she was with the, when the Levite was in her home with her father. The Levite and his manservant discuss where to spend the night. The woman's not included in this conversation. The one for whom the Levite made the trip is apparently not worthy of any conversation whatsoever. Indeed, she is never addressed. She never utters a word during this entire narrative for which she is the motivating factor for all that occurs. Isn't that odd? But it's not an oversight by the writer. No, it's deliberate. She is the most anonymous 
amongst the anonymous characters in this story, not only unnamed, but without even a voice. He's telling us something through this. In verse second part of verse 10, we read, He rose up and departed and arrived opposite Jebus, that is Jerusalem. There's a series of three verbs here in quick succession. Rose up, departed, arrived. We get a sense here of the Levite's impatience in starting his, his return journey. The father has delayed him for two and wanting additional delays in, in his journey. But he gets, so he gets a late start. And he must spend the night somewhere. He doesn't have time to make it home. If he was by himself, spending the night someplace wouldn't be a problem. He could find accommodations very easily. But he's not by himself. He's leading a mini caravan of three people and two donkeys. This makes finding accommodation more difficult. You didn't just pull into the Best Western in, in Jebus or uh, Gibeah or, or a place like that. No, you had to generally, you found someone that would take you into their house. That's what an inn was considered, like in the time of Bethlehem, there was no room in the inn. Everybody's house was full. It's not that there was no vacancy flashing at Motel 6. That's what we would think, but that's not it. So the, the, um, they arrive at Jebus, which later is called Jerusalem, um, when it becomes an Israelite city. It's not an Israelite city right now. And the Levite's manservant urges that they go into this city and seek lodging because the sun's about to go down. And his master said to him, we will not turn aside into the city of foreigners who do not belong to the people of Israel, but we will pass on to Gibeah. So Jebus has been a hostile city in the account of the judges. In chapter 1, we read that Israel is at war with the Jebusites, and they're unable to drive the Jebusites out of the land of Canaan as God commanded them to do. So the Jebusites remain there. So the Levite obviously thinks they're not going to receive a friendly welcome in Jebus. That's really ironic considering what is going to happen. In verse 13, the Levite says to a young man, Come and let us draw near to one of these places and spend the night at Gibeah or Ramah. So he insists that they press on to Gibeah. That's, that's about two and a half miles further north. Or maybe even make it to Ramah, three miles beyond Gibeah. Well, they're, they're, they're afoot or in leading donkeys. Obviously, the sun's about to go down. They, there's no way they can make it there. They're not going to be on the road at night. You, can't, you simply can't travel at night. You're going to fall victim to uh, banditry. So... This is, t- this is telling us, okay, he can't do this. Why is he talking about Because he's in a hurry to get home. He's trying to put the best possible distance between him and um, the, the girl's father back in Bethlehem. So they travel on, in verse 14 and 15. So they passed on and went their way, and the sun went down on them near Gibeah, which belongs to Benjamin. And they turned aside there to go in and spend the night at Gibeah. And he went in and sat down in the open square of the city, for no one took them into his house to spend the night. The issue of how far they're going to be able to get is finally decided by the sun. It sets when they're near Gibeah. So they give up hope. They can't go any further. They've got to stop there. If the Levite had listened to his servant, they would have stayed in Jebus. Maybe things would have turned out differently. If his host in Bethlehem had not been so hard to get away from, he might have gotten all the way home. Maybe if he left early like he tried on the, on the previous two days. Or at least he would have gotten as far as Ramah. And maybe 
things would have turned out differently again. But a whole series of apparently unrelated circumstances, including the time of sunset on the day in question and the time they left Bethlehem, have conspired to bring them to this very place, Gibeah, where their simple journey home is about to turn into a nightmare. My last point, point three, as we close, there is a direction to your life. Point number three, there is a direction to your life. Compare the journeys of these two Levite characters we've seen in chapter 17 and 18 with Micah, and now in chapter 19. The way they travel, the direction they travel is very revealing. The young Levite priest in 17 and 18 travels in a consistent direction from Bethlehem, Judea, in the south, north to Ephraim's territory where he lives with Micah, then further north to new territories with the Danites. His journey is like a straight line away from the heart of Israel, away from God, into pagan territory that is not allotted to the people of Israel by the Lord God. But our present Levite doesn't travel in a straight circle, excuse me, straight line. He travels in a circle from Ephraim territory to Bethlehem, Judah, back via Gibeah to the remote hills of Ephraim. The ending of both these accounts reflect the direction of travel. The Levite priest fathers a line of priests to the Danites' pagan temple that they build in what becomes the city of Dan. But the Levites' round trip involves an ever-widening circle of Israelites in a devastating civil war. This traveling is, is revealing. The question each of us must answer is this. Whose direction will you follow? Like the young Levite priest, will you be lured by Satan and his followers, by supernatural evil, away from the presence of God in your life, allowing others to take you into evil pagan territory? Or this, like this present Levite, following his own selfish interests and subsequently bringing evil into the lives of others in his, in his circling meandering? Or will you follow the path the Lord God has laid out for you? laid out in his word, which flows from our Bible and according to our Bible. It's never contrary to the Bible. Our Christian faith is linked to our Christian obedience, and our Christian obedience is linked to our Christian faith. Always, without exception, is that link there. Christ, obedient to the Father, the church, each of us, obedient to Christ. Before the time period of the judges before Joshua died. He gathered all of the tribes of Israel before him at Sechem and he said these words to them. Now therefore fear the Lord and serve him in sincerity and in faithfulness. Put away the gods that your fathers served beyond the river and in Egypt and serve the Lord. And if it is evil in your eyes to serve the Lord choose this day whom you will serve whether the gods of your fathers served in the region beyond the river or the gods of the Amorites in whose land you dwell. But as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. 
So the choices are laid before you. And it's your responsibility to respond. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we give thanks for your word. We give thanks for this account, although, Father, the, the, the poignancy of it in the plight of this young girl just, just tugs at our hearts, Father. I, I, I struggle not to weep when I think of her circumstances, although so far in the distant past that, that, that we don't even know when it happened, but Father, your word tells us this, 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 is, this did happen, and this, this, was, this was something that this, this poor girl had to face. Father, may we, may we learn from that, Father. May we, may we see the preciousness of the ladies in our life, Father. All of us, our, our mothers, our wives, our sisters, our daughters, our granddaughters, Father. May we treat them as Christ treats us, his bride. Father, may it be a lesson to us. May it be a wake-up call to us that we look at them and we see what you see. We see how precious they are. And weaker vessels than, than the men in this church, that we men, the stronger of the two sexes that we realize we are to protect them. We are to honor them. We are to cherish them. Father, give us the ability. Give us the desire to do that. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.